want to welcome you again to Door Creek Church and just give a big shout out and thanks to all of you who gave generously to help us meet our budget. And uh, we did that this last week and it's been amazing. So thank you, thank you. Awesome. Praise God. It was a little over a year ago that I was uh, sleeping, sound asleep in the middle of the night when I heard these kind of haunting words. And he died, and she died, and they died, but everything's okay. I was at my sister-in-law's house. I had the night shift where I was going to be just there in Lori's and Sarah's mom's room, making sure if she needed anything, I was there. She was in her last days, literally in her last hours. And so it was the night shift, and I I mean, I just startled. Mom hadn't said much, and anything she had said wasn't very intelligible, but she said it a second time. And he died, and she died, and they died, but everything's okay. I, I don't know about you, but when you hear the last words of someone on their deathbed, you lean in. You want to listen. Now, God's not on his deathbed, but there's a true sense right now that we're leaning in to hear what God says at the end of the Old Testament because Malachi is the last word from God in the Old Testament. The last prophet, the messenger. That's what his name means, the messenger for God. And so we're leaning in because God's not going to say another word, get this, for 400 years until we open our New Testament. So we're leaning in and we're listening what God has to say to his people. And uh, his people aren't in a good place. When it comes to the people of God, they're questioning God. They're questioning his goodness. They're questioning his love. They're questioning his justice. They're wondering if he's forgotten them. They're wondering actually if it's really worth it to serve God. Does it make a difference if we obey his commands? The promises of God weren't realized they're waiting for this promised savior he hasn't come their enthusiasm is not only waning it's at an all-time low they're going through the motions playing at worship cynicism replaced their faith and the ripple effects impacted not only their relationship with god but their relationships with each other maybe that's where you are right now full of questions god do you love me do you care do you, do you know about the injustice in my life? Are, are you just? Are you going to bring the evildoer to justice? You're wondering if your prayers are getting through the ceiling. You're wondering if it's making any difference in your life to follow God. You're, you're wondering if, if it's worth it. Wondering if it's worth it. The title of this message is When Serving God Seems Useless. And Malachi approaches us with the answer. And he says, here's what you got to do. You got to remember who God is. You got to take a look in the mirror. And then you, you got to turn back to the God who never changes. So first he says, you, you got to remember who God is. You remember what God says about himself. And in Malachi, the first thing God says in verse 2 is that I love you, people of God. I love you. The love that God had for his people went all the way back from the very beginning when he busted them out of, you know, Egypt and the oppression and the slavery and he called them 
to himself into a relationship and led him into the promised land. That was God. He loved them in the wilderness when they were disobedient. He loved them when they were disobedient. The prophets were calling the people to turn back. He loved them when they spent the 70 years in Babylon. He's loving them now. Even though they've returned back to the land, but their hearts have not returned back to God. He loves them, not because they were the greatest or the best or the brightest. No, he loved them because he loved them. Deuteronomy 7, verse 6 tells us. And this covenant that he made, the promises that he made, were of love and faithfulness. The prophet Jeremiah says God loves us with an everlasting love. And it's that love that quiets us and steadies us. Zephaniah 3, 17 says, The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. Listen to this. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult or sing over you with loud singing, our God, whose perfect love chases away our fears. When you think it's just a waste of time and useless to serve God, remember who God is. And he loves you. Even in your struggle right now, he loves you. But there's a second thing Malachi would point us to, and that is our God who loves us is not just a God. He is the God of God. He is king and ruler over all things and worthy of the world's worship. In chapter 1, verse 11, we read this. My name will be great among the nations from where the sun rises to where it sets. In every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to me because my name will be great among the nations. For I am a great king, says the Lord Almighty. And my name is to be feared among the nations. The psalmist writes in Psalm 99, The Lord is king. Let the nations tremble. He sits on his throne between the cherubim, between the angels. Let the whole earth quakes. How awesome is our God. The Lord sits in majesty in Jerusalem, exalted above all the nations. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Your name is holy. And when we understand who God is and see him rightly, we will fear him. That is, we will see him for he is and respond with this reverent, affectionate, humble obedience. And they lost that. And we lose that. The amazing thing is, we don't lose it when we get in the company of someone who's important. Like the day I met Billy Graham. Oh my word, Billy, Billy Graham. Like I was focused. I was attentive. When I shook his hand, I looked him in the eye. I was very aware of who he was and my whole demeanor was calibrated off of this godly man. He's king, worthy of the world's praise. He's also our creator. And that's why he's king, because he made it all. He's our father. Look at chapter 2, verse 10. Do we not all have one father? Yeah, God's our one father. Did not one God create us? Yeah, that's why he's our father, because he made us. Verse 15, has not the one God made you? You belong to him in body and spirit. And because he's our creator, he has rightful rule. And because he has rightful rule as our creator, he has rightful rule as judge over all things. 
He has the right to judge. The people complained that justice had escaped God. Those who do evil are apparently good in his eyes, they said in chapter 2, verse 17. Where is this God of justice, they cried. And God says, well, just hang on, because I'm coming. I, I am coming, and I'm going to put you on trial. And so right now, it's just like he's saying to the people of God of how it was when our parents would say, go to your room, and you go to your room, and then you waited for your parent to come, and it wasn't going to be good. For me, when I went up into my room, what I could hear is my mom's hands rustling through the drawer of utensils because I knew what she was looking for. And it was the wooden cooking spoon. And I was going to get it. That's why I was putting books down uh, my pants. It was that waiting period. Oh, I'm going to visit you. Chapter 3, verse 5. So I will come to put you on trial. I'm coming. Don't you worry about justice. I'm coming and you're in my crosshairs. I'll be quick to testify against sorcerers. So these guys had turned to witchcraft, adulterers and perjurers against whose defraud labors of their wage, who oppress the widows and the fatherless and deprive the foreigners among you of justice. But do not fear me, says the Lord Almighty. When serving God seems useless, remember who God is. He loves you. He is king over all kings. He's your creator and the rightful judge of all things, your life and mine. But then he says a second thing. When it seems useless and you think it's a waste and you think the problem's God, let me tell you, the problem's not God. Take a look in the mirror. Look at yourself. Look in the mirror. And, and the mirror that he's giving them is the word of God. And the word of God is going to come and it's going to show them who they really are and how far it is that they have fallen as people who've been created in the likeness of God, how unlike God they were, how unloving of God they were, of how unloving they were of their neighbors. So the great philosopher Soren Kierkegaard, taking the, uh, the, the truth of James chapter um, I think it's chapter 1, verse 22 through 25, where James says, when you read the Bible, but don't do the Bible, it's like a man looking in a mirror, and when he moves away from the mirror, he forgets what he looks like. And, and so Kierkegaard says, so the Bible, and many people have said this over the years, the Bible's like a mirror that helps us see ourselves. He put it this way. The fundamental purpose of God's word is to give us true self-knowledge. It's a real mirror, and when we look at ourselves properly, in it we see ourselves as God wants us to see ourselves, not airbrushed as we'd like to see ourselves. The assumption behind this is that the purpose of God's revelation is for us to become transformed, more like Christ, not just informed, to become the people God wants us to be. But this is impossible until we see ourselves as we really are. And so he gives this advice for reading the word of God. Look at yourself in the mirror, not, in, not at the mirror. Look at yourself, not the mirror. Focus on what you can understand, not what is confusing and you don't understand. Have you heard the Mark Twain quote? It's pretty classic. He said this, Ain't those parts of the Bible that I can't understand that bother me. It's the parts that I do understand that bother me. 30 says, be alone when you read God's word so you can just be focused and take it in. Remember that God's word is addressed to you. Maybe it wasn't written to you, 
but it's for you. And just like the prophet Nathan said to David, you're the man. Understand that God's living word is speaking to you when you open it up. And so listen to it. Receive it as a word from God for you. And then wait silently before God. Because what happens is God uses the Spirit along with the Word to do a great work in our life. So sometimes it rebukes us. Other times it teaches us. Sometimes it corrects us. Sometimes it trains us to do and live rightly before God and others so that we're prepared and equipped to do all the good things that God has called us to do in life. And so they're looking in the mirror of God's Word and what they see is a bunch of shattered lives and shattered hearts and shattered marriages and shattered families and shattered temple and shattered priesthood and shattered society. Shattered. And this was written 2,400 years ago. And as we hear the word of God, which was a mirror to them, all of a sudden we see, oh my word, these things are not ancient issues. These are the stuff of our lives today. And what they saw when they heard the word of God is they didn't love God and they didn't love their neighbor. And so the first thing that God shows them is just the fundamental failure of the priesthood, of the leadership, the the very people that were to help them worship God, teach them about God, help them bring the right offerings to God so their sins could be forgiven. That this was so broken and flawed, how so? These priests kept offering up these blind, lame, diseased animals when they knew clearly what the Word of God said. So look at what God said to the very first priest, Aaron, Moses' brother, Leviticus chapter 9, verses 2 and 3. He said to Aaron, Take a bull calf for your sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering, both without defect. That's the key phrase, blameless. So their lives are not blameless. And so their sin is going to be laid on this blameless hand. It's a substitutionary sacrifice. So it's got to be without defect and present them before the Lord. Then say to the Israelites, so the first part is for the, for the priest, then for the people of God, take a male goat for a sin offering and a calf and a lamb, both a year old and what again? Without defect for a burnt offering. And what are they doing? They're bringing all these defective animals, diseased animals, lame animals before God. And they're despising God. And they're dishonoring God. It's as if they're spitting on God. So they're defective in their leadership, defective in their worship, defective, we read, in their teaching. It's not just hypocrisy where they're saying the right things and doing the other thing. No, they're actually teaching the wrong things and they're living disobedient lives before God and then before the people who are seeing it and following it. Paul would say this, the Apostle Paul in the New Testament, to a young pastor, his protege, his disciple Timothy, he'd say this, Timothy, watch your life and doctrine. Watch how you live your life and watch what you're teaching. Persevere in them because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. And these priests were not watching their life and they were not watching their doctrine, their teaching. And in so doing, they despise God through their willful disobedience. And not surprisingly, the people followed and they did the same thing. And so God shows 
the mirror up then and shines the light on the people. And he calls them cheats. He says, the priests are unfaithful. That surprisingly, you're unfaithful. He calls them cheats in verse 14 of chapter 1 for what they are doing. Promising to give God that perfect little lamb, but then there's a swap swaparama somewhere between Tuesday and the Sabbath where they go, eh, I don't know. I think that's pretty good. I'll keep that one for myself. And here's a crippled lamb. I'll bring that to the priest. He won't care anyways. And God says they're cursed of their own doing. And not only that, they've married foreign women who worshipped idols, and now that's mixed into their homes, into their families, into their very lives. And so the one who found it easy to cheat God by bringing the, un- the blemished lamb or the goat or whatever it was, the, the leftovers, the second best to God, well, huh, unfaithful to God, unfaithful to each other. So he talks about, hey, you're adulterers. You're committing adultery. You're being unfaithful to the wife of your youth. You made a vow. You made a promise. I've joined you together, body and spirit, that you might raise up a godly offspring. And you're just flaunting that. He calls out their adultery. He calls out their hatred that leads to divorce. And then he, in chapter 3, verse 15, he points out their sorcery and witchcraft and their lying and their oppressing workers of fair wages and oppressing widows and orphans of justice and the refugees and the immigrants of that as well. And to top it off, these people are accusing God of not loving them. God of not being fair, concluding that it's futile. It's really a waste of time. It doesn't make any difference. It doesn't make any difference if we serve you, keep your commands or not. And so prophet says, hey, You think this is about God? Take a look in the mirror. And here's what they saw. (laughs) They saw the same thing I saw on Labor Day morning this week when I walked into Perkins to meet our good friends, Dan and Sarah, we haven't seen for a long time. Dan was the best man in our wedding. You guys, 40 years ago, September 26th. That's right, 40 years ago. And this is what it said. This is the pie case, right, at Perkins. And it said, it just shattered. We don't know why. Please do not touch. Well, the mirror of God's word showed shatteredness, shattered lives, shattered marriages, shattered families, shattered poor people and vulnerable people like widows and orphans and refugees and immigrants. Lives shattered, justice systems shattered, the the temple worship shattered, the whole kit and caboodle, it's all shattered. But God knows why. Malachi knows why. We don't know why. Oh, we know why. You've been unfaithful to God and the domino started to fall. You've been unfaithful to each other. So how does God respond to people like us, to people like me, to people like them? Arrogant, hypocritical, cynical, people that put God in the dock, questioning him, accusing him of being unfaithful, unloving, unjust. How does God respond? Chapter 3, verse 6, lets us know clearly how God responds. And God says this, I, the Lord, do not change. So you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Hey, when you think it's useless to serve God, remember who he is. 
Look at yourself in the mirror and, and celebrate this fact that God doesn't change. Now, at first we might think, that's not a good thing. Because God is just, and he'll by no means leave the guilty unpunished, and so we're cooked. We are apart from turning to the mercy of God. Because when God doesn't change, it includes all of who God is. His love and his mercy, his justice and his goodness, his kindness, and bringing people to account. There's mercy And so when serving God seems useless, return to the God who doesn't change. And do what he says to do in chapter 1, verse 9. Plead with God for grace. Plead with God to be gracious to you. Call upon him for mercy, like the man did to Jesus. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Plead for grace. How do we return? with our whole heart, repent, turn back to God, confess your sin. He says in chapter 1, verse 2, Ted, I wish you'd just shut the doors on the temple and all this bogus, blasphemous worship. He says, shut the doors. Shut the doors of the bogus worship, of, of our despising God, of worship that dishonors him shut the doors on our lies and adultery and cheating and hatred shut the doors on the divorce on the cheating people of wages cheating people of their rights shut it down stop it turn to god walk in obedience remember his commands chapter 4 verse 4 and in so doing honor the king honor the king that his name might be praised to the nations. Give him his due. And so he says, return to me. Return to me. Look at verse 10. And it's a very interesting thing is how he tells him to return. Because he's, he's saying, return to me. And they say to him in chapter 3, well, we haven't gone anywhere. He says, no, you've left me. <laughs> you, are, you are so far out of the picture. You're, you're like the, the, the person in the car who says, honey, you know, why don't we sit like that? Because they're looking ahead to a couple of lovebirds ahead. And you know, the guy and the, the gal's right like that. And the husband says, honey, I, I haven't moved. I'm still here in the driver's seat. You've moved. And God's saying, you guys, you, you've moved. You're not even over on the side of the bench. You're out of the car and you're going in the wrong direction. You, you've moved. You've completely moved away from me. And so he says, here's how you need to return. He says, you got to return economically. Your whole heart will be evidenced by the fact that you bring the whole tithe. Look at chapter 3, verse 10. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse because he just told them, you're robbing me. They're going, what are you talking about? How are we robbing you, God? He said, because you've withheld what belongs to me. In fact, everything you have belongs to me. And remember, I've always tried to remind you of that through the command that you would always give that tithe, that tenth, to remind you that everything you have, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it and all who live in it, you belong to me. And so you're serious about turning back to me? Well, then you do the work. You bring the whole tithe. What does he say? Bring the whole tithe in the storehouse, that place where 
then there would be food in there for the priests and their families. Then there would be food in there for the priests to give to the poor and the widows and the orphan and the refugee, the sojourner who didn't have land, couldn't raise up crops, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I'll not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. I want to give glory to God and just say, by the grace of God, my parents taught me this principle when they put the quarters, my dad put the quarters on the breakfast table before we went to church. I didn't get an allowance, but he gave me a quarter and taught me to start giving back to God a portion. And for 40 years, Lori and I have done this. And we didn't have a lot when we started out. It's going to sound like the 1800s, but we had a $15 a week food budget. We went to the Christmas tree lot three times before we bought the $10 tree. And all I can tell you, this isn't a promise, but this is a principle that when we honor God with our wealth, he blesses us. And it's not just material, but it's not less than material either according to Malachi chapter 3. And I would just tell you that my experience in trusting God and showing my love and investing in His mission in this world so that the nations would love God, that He has just opened wide the storehouse of God's blessing. Would you take Him up on His challenge? I challenge you this September that, that you would try it and see if it's not true. That you give a tenth. Maybe you go, there's no way. Then give 2%, 3%. Start somewhere and say, God, this part represents my whole. And I'm trusting you. This is a, an expression of my trust, an expression of my love. And I want you to use it for the furtherance of your kingdom. And I want you to know that this part represents my whole heart is in, in with you, God. In with you. The second thing he says when we honor God as king is we don't just give God his due by bringing the whole tithe, but we join together with others who fear God. That's what he's talking about in verse 16 of chapter 3, that a group of people, the remnant they're called, the faithful ones who feared God, got together and said, we're, we're going to be true to God. We're going to love him. We're going to keep his commands. We're serious about this. And let's hold each other accountable. And, and they wrote it down. On the scroll of remembrance that on this day, we are committing ourselves to walk with God, for God, arms locked together. And guys, that's why we do groups. And that's why we're asking you this weekend to sign up, get involved in a life group, get in a women's Bible study, get to Alpha and learn the basics of the faith and get answers for your questions. Get, get into a, a support group if you're going through grief or divorce or are you trying to fit, whatever it is, get in a group so that you can be strengthened and grow or come to this place where you're able for the first time to acknowledge Christ as king. And the last thing he says in the book of Malachi, look to Jesus, the promised son of righteousness. There's this beautiful passage that speaks to Christ. So in chapter 3, he says, a messenger's coming to prepare the way of the Lord. And then the messenger will come to his holy temple, speaking of Christ. The messenger is coming before Christ is John the Baptist. But, but here, we read this about Christ. This is a, a, a direct reference to Christ. But for you who revere my name, the son of righteousness. 
So you hear that and you think it's a S-O-N. No, it's the son of righteousness. It's Christ, the bright morning star he's called in other places of scripture, will rise with healing in its, in its rays. The rising of the son of righteousness is none other than Christ rising from the dead and through his death on our behalf, the perfect spotless lamb of God without defect, the once and for all sacrifice, we are healed. The shatteredness of our lives and our marriages, our families, of our world, of our churches, healed by the son of righteousness. And what happens? We're going to go out and frolic like well-fed calves. What does that mean? Oh, we're, we're going we're to be freed. We're going to have joy. And he goes on to talk about peace being ours. Find healing in Christ for your shattered lives. So the book of Malachi ends, and I told you there's 400 years of silence until we open up the New Testament and we meet up with a guy who hears the word of the Lord. So we haven't heard the word of the Lord since Malachi. Now all of a sudden, the angel Gabriel comes and he starts talking to a priest named Zechariah who has been trying to get pregnant with his wife Elizabeth to, to no avail. And Gabriel says, you're going to have a child. He's going to be a son. And you're, you're to set him aside because God's got great work for him to do. Luke chapter 1. And he says, give me a sign because I can't believe it. And he says, well, here's the sign since you don't believe me. You're not going to be able to talk. And he couldn't talk through that whole pregnancy. When little John the Baptist was born, the, his mother Elizabeth said he's going to be called John because that's what the angel Gabriel told Elizabeth as well. They said, it can't be. He's got to be named after his dad. They go to Zachariah and say, Zachariah, what, what is his name? He says, give me, give me a tablet. Give me a tablet. So he writes it down and he shows it to him. He's to be named John. And this is the prophecy he gives over his son. In chapter 1, verse 76, And you, my child, speaking to John the Baptist, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God by which the rising sun, there it is, the sun of righteousness, the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the path of peace. That's our hope for the shattered lives and messes that we've made of our lives in this world. This is our hope to find healing in the son of righteousness. Would you believe that this God, who is king and creator and judge over all things, that he loves you? Would you believe that this God who loves you will not change? And yes, he will deal with all that is not right and make it right. And that he is full of mercy. And in his tender mercy, he sent his son into the darkness of this world. And he walked into the conflict of this world to the point where he walked into the darkness of the cross when literally it became dark. Right from those six hours when he took on the whole sin of the world, separated from the Father, that we would be re reunited with the God who made us and loved us. Turn to Christ, the Son of Righteousness, who has healing in his wings. Healing for your marriage. Healing for your family. 
healing for the broken relationships in this world, healing for all that is twisted and broken in this world. Turn to Christ. Let's pray. So Lord Jesus, we do. We praise you and love you that you are a God who doesn't change, that you are a God who loves us. And though you are the rightful king and you have the right to judge us, you took our judgment so that we could know the Father's love. So, Lord Jesus, keep healing us. Keep healing us. Use your spirit as we hear the word to shine on those places in our life that are broken, Lord. The very things that were broken 2,000 plus years ago, Lord, heal us. And we turn to you for mercy, for forgiveness. We want to walk in obedience. We confess, Lord, that we've mucked it up. We've made a mess. We've broken your heart. and We've broken so many others. Forgive us. Have mercy on us. And Lord, may we know your joy. May we be quieted by your love. May we be guided by your light, Lord, into peace, that we might be people who bring the peace and love and mercy of God to a world that so desperately needs it. We pray all this in Christ's name. For your honor and glory, Lord Jesus, amen.